Welcome to the Exam Study Expert Podcast, helping you ace your exams at school and university through the psychology of high performance and the science of studying smarter, not harder. It's my pleasure to introduce your host, the Cambridge-trained memory psychologist and exam success coach, William Wadsworth! Hello and welcome to the Exam Study Expert podcast. Today I'm digging back into the podcast archives to unearth a hidden gem of an episode from my first year as a podcaster. It's the fascinating story of how a boy from a primitive village community on the island of Fiji became an incredibly senior executive in one of the world's largest companies with thousands of people reporting to him and a paycheck that could afford an extremely comfortable Western lifestyle and an awful lot of gift giving and goodwill. Primitive, by the way, is his own word uh, for his for his own background. And I should also add that this conventional uh, idea of you know rising to the top of the corporate ladder and, and becoming very very senior with a large paycheck, you know, I completely accept that that doesn't necessarily have to be the standard definition of success. And I would absolutely encourage anyone listening to have a really careful think about what for them might constitute success in life. However. What fascinates me about this story, however you regard uh, your definition of success, is you know this man clearly uh, came at an, an incredibly long way, went on a massive journey through his life, with just such a stark contrast uh, from the sort of circumstances, you know, a humble village without sort of electricity, uh, you know, where he started his life, uh, and this, uh, you know, r- sort of right, you know, making it right to the sort of the top of the the kind of the Western world and and, and the career ladder there. It just absolutely fascinating how he did it. Um, I particularly love this story, and the reason I wanted to share it with you now uh, for the following two reasons. The first reason is that it demonstrates just how powerful education can be. The reason he was able to go on such a journey of transformation was that he levelled up his life prospects repeatedly by seizing a series of educational opportunities, each of which was a really long shot and a big reach at the time. But he did it and he got these opportunities uh, to get into competitive educational uh, programmes not just once, but at least three or four times in slightly different ways by my count. And in so doing, each time he gradually put himself more and more in a position uh, where he could choose to to leave his humble beginnings behind and, and go on to have a very different life. But the second reason I love this man's story is that even though his circumstances became ever less humble in the course of this sort of meteoric rise up the societal and corporate ladder, the man himself, a man named Joe, retained just an incredible humility and generousness of spirit, giving back where he could, uh, and remaining one of the just gentlest and warmest souls I've ever had the privilege to talk to. This seemed like the perfect episode then to end the year on. Uh, A little bonus, uh, if you like sort of tying a bow uh, at the end of our recent Student Stories series, uh, which we've been playing on the podcast this season, and it seems like, uh, you know, you've been enjoying. Uh, I thought this fitted in very nicely with with that theme. And, you know, given the the, the sort of warmth of spirit of Joe, it just seemed like a really nice fit for for this season of of sort of festivity and, and Christmas time. So I'll be back with you again in the new year. But for now, sit back and enjoy this final episode of the year and the remarkable story of a man named Joe. Joe, a very warm welcome to the Exam Study Expert podcast. Thank you, Will. Thanks ever so much for for being with us. I'm really, really looking forward to this conversation. 
I think slightly unusually, but for reasons which will become clear in the, in a moment, I think it'd be really helpful for uh, for listeners if you could start by just describing where your where your career journey ended up. So tell us a little bit about the job you were doing at the point you retired. Yeah, well, I think I think I can describe that in two phases. One is when I retired from my professional work, if you like. I used to work for a oil company, Shell, and uh, I reached the top of what I then considered was uh, was where I probably would would uh, finish up. In in what I was doing then, I was running the engineering project, engineering group, and maintenance of all the Shell facilities, other than the platforms out in the ocean, in, from the refineries to the depots to terminals. In the, in the Australasia Pacific, excepting for Japan and uh, China. Uh-huh. Uh, and that involved uh, probably several hundred, nearly a thousand engineers, professional engineers. And, and I was based in Melbourne, Australia, traveling con- constantly through the Asia to part of the Arabian Peninsula, looking after these facilities and the people that work and base in these countries. That's the first part of my professional career. The other part, I, the reason I say I said two phases, the other part is the bit that I do out of sheer loyalty and desire to help my country. When I left Shell, and I left it early because I asked for it, I went back to the Fiji government. I am from Fiji, by the way, and asked and with all this international experience, and I knew that my country was struggling at that point after a coup, and I also knew that there's a lot of people of that Fiji, but so-called brain drain. I thought to go back to Fiji and, and ask the government, here's my experience. I don't need the money. How can you use me to help? And I suggested them, suggested to them that the only that the best way I would like to be helped is in the corporate sector of the government. In other words, a corporatized sector. Yeah. Uh, and it was then is one of the most enjoyable part of my life. I was doing it out of sheer loyalty and sense of duty to my government. I was uh, executive chairman for the power authority, imagine director of the telecom, head of the uh, investment fund, uh, head of the Fijian, the native uh, population of Fiji, Fijian Investment Trust uh, as chair, uh, and head of the um, audiovisual commission of Fiji to try and attract Hollywood so-called Bollywood wow. filmmakers who come to Fiji and use Fiji as a, as, as a uh, location. And uh, it's a few other jobs, but those were the main, uh, the main ones. I did, I did that from when I retired from Shell in 2000, and, uh, uh, 2000 to 2007. Thoroughly enjoyable, wonderful restructuring work, restructured the, the, the entire energy sector and the telecom sector to virtually to bootstrap Fiji into the 20, then the 21st century. How interesting. Let's let's go back to the beginning. So if you would, let's paint a little picture of your upbringing as a boy in, in Fiji. Uh, give, give us a flavour of what life was like. Okay, we'll imagine yourself running uh, nearly half the globe in, in, in a corporate professional centre for, for Shell. And then taking over the corporate sector, restructuring and, and the uh, rebooting of the, of the corporate sector of the government of Fiji. And then think back to a young boy growing up in the village. 
I grew up in a village where there was no electricity, obviously nothing like shoes, uh, no vehicle whatsoever, no, no of any mechanical contrivance, not even a bicycle. We have kerosene lamp that we used at night to study if you have to. It was, and I'll say this without being afraid of, of, of using a term that's politically incorrect, but we were that very primitive, but happy, primitive and happy. Toilets, for instance, we don't have toilets. There's no hole in the ground. Was, we grew up in a stage where we go to a forest to use it as, uh, as, a, as a toilet or go down to the beach. <laughs> so it's that primitive. Yeah, so that's, yeah. the, that's, that's the environment, or that's my beginning, my story. My father, who was Chinese, and my mother was a Fijian, a young Fijian girl, got married. And me, my brother, and my sister were the only ones that were of any light color. And I, and I used to be teased a lot as a young Chinese. You know, they used to call me Chinese, Chinese, Chinese. Uh, right. So as a young child, that's the environment I grew up in. a way, happy, extremely happy in the environment, running free, catching your own fees, planting your own food. If you don't do that, you don't eat. Well, not, not, not quite that way because Fiji is very communal and, and family-oriented, so someone will always feed you. But that was the environment I grew up with or grew up in. And there was only one school in the whole island. It's what we call a district school. It takes you from class one in those days to class five. I guess that's from the age of six to the age of 10. And after that, there's no other school. If you want, another, if you want to go to another school, you have to have enough money from your family to, for a boat fare and have a relative working somewhere in the mainland to go and stay with them and work and uh, go to a boarding school. And that's what you did, was it? And that's what I did. And that's what's the story of my first up to the age of 10. I first went to the boarding school at the age of 10, leaving this wonderful village and my family. I guess you had to be quite driven to kind of take that step and carry on your schooling after age 10. Yeah, given given the education system, then yes, you have to be. I was driven. And I was driven by the fact that I was different. It doesn't matter where you live in the world, children are very cruel. And if you're different, they tease you. And because I was half Chinese, they tease me like hell. So I used to grow up with this inferiority complex. The only way I can express myself is to be their equal. It's either in sports or in the academic world. What drives me was I was to get over. I wanted to get over this rather existence where I can't see myself being teased the rest of my life. The only way I can do that is, as I said, other education. And so very early on, I always wanted to be whichever the most educated in the village was. First of all, I wanted to be a clergy because I thought the clergy in the village is the most respected of them all. Mm. And then I didn't quite agree with some of his sermons. And I said, no, no, that's not for me. Uh, And and the next choice was being a teacher because I thought the teacher in the village in those primary schools were were very respected and and they they seemed worldly to me. So I wanted to be a teacher. And so off I went to boarding school. And then, of course, the fact that my mother was a single mother at that stage, we had eight. I had, sorry, seven siblings. One died young. And there wasn't much food on the table. So I was absolutely driven to do something with my education to primarily to help my mother 
my mother was the driving force in my to help my mother was the driving force so that I could have a proper job, help my mother with money so that she can look after the rest of the family. And so I went to boarding school with that in mind. Amazing. So perhaps with an aspiration at that point to be a teacher. Um, eventually you got interested in engineering and that was that was your yes. degree, if I, if I think I'm right in saying. Was there a particular moment in your school days where, if you'll pardon the pun, a, a light bulb went on and you first got excited about, about the world of engineering? Yeah, well, I've got to tell you a funny story. This is what made me want to become an engineer, quite by accident. In those days in the primitive villages, as I said, no electricity, no fuel of such liquid fuel, except kerosene. So we used ironing. I used my mother and all the other ladies in the village. When they iron clothes, most of the listeners won't even remember this. It's been old ironing, old cast iron thing that you make some charcoal, put it into this container on top of the iron, light it, and so the charcoal will stay, will warm up the iron and you do the ironing. Yeah. And I guess in the Western world, you use coal because it lasts longer. In Fiji, you use coconut. We would cut the coconut open and the shell that contains the meat in the, and, and the, uh, the milk of the coconut, it's extremely, they make very good charcoal. So we'll burn that. When they turn into charcoal, we will uh, save the charcoal, then cram it into this container on top of the iron then light that with the the fire, then that's the ironing. So I was late to go to school. School started in February, very early. I didn't get to school till April, and that's another story. But at any rate, so I I first went into school late, six weeks late. And by then, all the boys have paired up and their dormitories, they know all the ropes and everything. The first day was Tuesday, I think. Uh, I came in on the weekend. And on the notice board, it was uh, the dormitory that I went to was the ironing day. They turned to go to the ironing room of the boarding school to do some ironing. So I said to myself, oh, heck, I, haven't, I can't see any coconut anywhere. And I, can't, <laughs> I don't know this area enough to go and look for coconuts to, to husk it so I can burn some charcoal. <laughs> so I said, well, I'll just go along and see what they do. So Tuesday after school, we all went to this ironing room. And all the kids rushed in and they grabbed all these irons. And at this point, inverted commas, iron. And I was standing there watching, wow, no coconut anywhere. And I saw this wire coming out of the back of the iron, plug it into a wall, connected to a wall. And when they turned the switch on, which I later learned is a switch, a red lamp in those days, every three-point plug on the wall will have a pallet lamp so that people know it's on. And they turn it on, and this red lamp would come on. And lo and behold, they started ironing. I was absolutely fascinated. I thought, whoa, that little lamp, the red lamp, that's probably where the heat is coming through and through the wire into the iron. But I was too embarrassed to ask. You know, otherwise there'll be another, po- another point where the, the kids will tease me as I am you know, don't even know what an iron is. They will tease me or something like that. So I just was pretending I knew what it was. And when they all went, when it's finished, I walked up timidly, played around the switch so the lamp comes on and I felt the iron starting to get warmer. I was fascinated. I said, crikey, what is this? I saw the pilot lamp. When I touched the pilot lamp, it was, it was warm but not hot. And played around with it. Eventually, it came off. And so I said, I wonder what's inside. And I put my finger in it. And boy... I was lucky to be alive today. I got a shock. <laughs> I got, literally, I got the shock of my life. Uh-huh. And 
at that point, I said, gosh, I really, I have to understand this. This is so fascinating. I would have to understand it. So it's something to do with electricity. That's when the light bulb came on. I said to myself, I have to get my education, whatever form of education, so that I can understand what causes this iron to get hot when you plug into this three-pinpoint plug in the wall. That's amazing. Uh, so that's a story of um, engineering. Then years later, when I went through the career of uh, schooling, boarding school, and then eventually, finally, uh, all the Fijian students, to get a scholarship, you have to go for an interview. And they asked me, what do you want to do? And I said, engineering. They asked, why? <laughs> why? And I said, electrical engineering, in fact. And said, why so specific? Everybody else, we, we know that when we wanted to engineering, had no idea what kind of engineering they wanted. They, they don't even know the difference. And you said electrical. And I told them the story, the interview. <laughs> that got me the scholarship. I'm pretty sure of that, Will. <laughs> That's amazing. To me, listening to all of this, it sounds like just such a powerful combination of things to have in, in your mind as you're going through your school days and, and on into university. That drive, that fascination to learn about the uh, the world and science and technology, yeah. um, that motivation to provide for your, your family, help your mother and uh, put food on the table, yeah. I guess. And finally, that thirst to prove yourself and show off a little of what you're capable of and show that you can be the best or you can hold your own with with anyone else yeah so should we talk about how you ended up at, at university and then what shaped I'm, your thoughts about what you'd want to do moving on from university yeah. okay um in fiji in those days not many opportunities to go to university um to get scholarship they probably 10 a year if lucky there's the fiji government scholarship then there's a commonwealth scholarship which is the the much sought after one from Australian government, then New Zealand, I think, offers one or two. It's competitive. And you sit an exam at the, at the what we call then the sixth form. It's called university entrance exam. It's based on New Zealand curriculum. And when you pass that, then you're entitled to go to university. After that, you spend another year for, for Fijians, particularly, and, and by Indian brothers, communities. Uh, they were mo- Fiji is mostly Fijian and Indians. We would then spend another year in a grammar school, the only grammar school in Suva, which is the capital of Fiji, where all the expatriates, people that, that work in Fiji in those days, uh, go to school. This is nothing absolutely racial, but it's predominantly white. Sure. And the underlying reason for that, for any of us uh, native Fijians and, uh, and, and some Indians who can't afford to, for their parents to send them straight to university after university entrance, is to, if you like, socialize us ready for university. Learn how to mix with white kids because the university will be either in New Zealand or in Australia. Uh, so that we don't create faux pas, I guess, in, in a mixed society. Because up to this stage, it was predominantly just Fijian boarding school. We spend a year in this school, and I, I've used this term, and it's not derogatory, but I say it because I was one of them, and it's not, it's may, may, may be politically incorrect to others, but I'm going to say it anyway, to culturize ourselves into the Western culture, sure. to learn how to mix with white kids when you go to university so that you don't put your foot in things. And don't put your finger in any sockets. In and, and any sockets, <laughs> exactly. So uh, we spend that year mixing with all these kids. And then uh, waiting for applications for scholarship, which I did. Eventually it came and I applied for scholarship, applied for a commonwealth scholarship, which is a much sought after one, had my interview, 
told them the story why I become a, became an engineer. And I got the scholarship. I went to university in, in uh, the University of New South Wales in Sydney. Congratulations. Yeah, thank you. <laughs> yes. So when I got that scholarship, I couldn't believe it. I thought, gee, crikey. I thought that was, that's it. You know, that's, I made it into another world because I knew what I had been on. I moved to a, a foreign place and, and, and be on my own. Yeah, yeah. What what was your experience like when you started going to university? Okay, uh, I was lucky. Our principal at at Queen Victoria School is the school where most uh, Fijians of quality, if you like, academic quality, go to. It was uh, from um, uh, Oxford, a graduate from Oxford University, an uh, uh, Englishman. Okay. Uh, when I got the scholarship, he had a friend from university who was a master of one of the colleges in Sydney. Sydney University, not the University of New South Wales. When he learned that I've got this scholarship, he got in touch with this college master, Master Peter Pockley was his name, uh-huh. and asked him if he could help this young native boy get into one of these uh, residential colleges. And sure enough, he contacted his counterpart in the University of New South Wales in a college called Goldstone College, and they got a place for me. So for the first two years of going into university, I stayed in that uh, Go to college, residential college, which was a great help. It's almost a move from a boarding school into another, except with a lot more freedom. And I was able to, not knowing the big city like that, I was able to just move across the road to the university because otherwise I would have been completely lost, physically lost in this great city of Sydney. (laughs) That's another story. Beautiful city, by the way. Beautiful city. And I can't get over all the underground rooms, you know, restaurants. In Fiji, everything's built above ground and everything's built so that it's no higher than the coconut tree. And when you come into this in this Sydney and we were taken around when we went underground to have lunch, I couldn't believe it. I was sitting underground beneath a tall building. Now, you may take it for granted and all kids in the Western world may take it for granted. For Fijian boy from a primitive village, Rudimentary building is that's house. We don't have wooden block buildings because they're just that's house. Falls down every two years and we rebuild it community-wise. And we went underground. Gosh, I went. And then I discovered the train going underground the cities. I mean, that's mind-blowing. I couldn't, I couldn't, I couldn't even fathom how they would drill tunnels. We have this huge monstrosity of trains traveling around underground. You know, with that fascination. If I had not gone into college, I would have been lost in these huge cities. I wouldn't know to get from point A to point B. Ever grateful to Mr. Walker, who was my principal, who arranged this all for me. So the first two years of university, relatively, I didn't have to worry too much about transportation, how to get to university, etc. Fantastic. To kind of reflecting on your your time at university, both academically and I guess when you did start to think about going into a career afterwards... Any advice for sort of people in similar situations, so university engineers around the world? Okay. Um, because I was focused in trying, wanting to understand electricity generally, so my choice is fairly clear. So I was lucky in that way. But the moral of, the, of that story is that if you're focused on what you want to do as a start, things is much easier because you, as I discovered there's so many options, and even more so today. Because if you, as a young 
person, you may not necessarily know what careers is out there in the world. And you see people doing this and doing that. How do you get to that point? So I was lucky thinking back if a situation that I would see is that I was focused on becoming an engineer. So that was fairly simple. But for young young people coming to university, and I, I had this problem with my daughters when they were going through university. They had no idea what to do, although one of them was fairly focused. The other, there were so many options. And if you don't have a motivating factor, if you don't have the drive for something, the tendency is to choose something simple or something that may not be of practical value when you come out of university. Yeah, yeah. If you can afford the time, and you've got plenty of time as a young person, I would always suggest go with your first choice as a starter. Focus on that because that's a you're building a foundation block for what you may then have the ability and at least the basic uh, academic training to choose something that you really have passion for if you don't want what you did. Fantastic. So you, you obviously had a really clear idea of what you wanted to, to study and learn, learn more about it at university. Tell me about what happened next. Okay, so I went into university um, and I very soon had <laughs> a funny story. Uh, Academic-wise, it's sufficiently good. For the first time, when you go, to, you take your own notes, for instance, okay, at school, high, high school, you know, you give a note and you give exams and you... And then you sit there and listen, take your notes and do your own research at the university. I'm going back to the 60s mm. here. And I'm going back to coming from a, a culture of, of being taught to the university where you're being taught and do some self-learning as well, you know, self-research, go to the library. Uh, so what, what happens next is I learned to fit into these sorts of learning process, if you like, that it's not entirely up to the lecturer. It's a lot to do your work as well. So i Fairly focused in using the library. For those of different background listening to this, one of the issues you've got to put up with is, is learn how to live with the culture. You know, there's a whole lot of cultural differences. Yeah. For example, I lived for the first two years in this residential college, and it was in those days, I'm not sure what's happened these days, but every dinner time, excepting Friday, you have to wear an academic gown for dinner. Okay. And you have to be formally dressed a tie and a coat shoes and all. Uh-huh. Now you're going to understand, coming from Fiji, for us, first of all, formal is a tie. doesn't matter what you wear on your feet. It doesn't matter what color shirt is. Now, when I said you could, uh, the people said you could have a coat and a tie, that's fine. In Fiji, what we, what, what we call formal, when we go to a formal dance, is you wear a tie on, on any colorful thing you want. And we love colorful shirts. You know, this this Hawaiian shirt. Yeah. I used to go to formal dinner with these colorful white shirts, uh, sorry, uh, colorful island shirts, tie, and a pair of flip-flops <laughs> because it's formal. You know, that's what I've been by culture. And it was not until I made friend with somebody who, who I played rugby with, he knew me well enough to say, Joe, stop wearing your pajamas to formal <laughs> dinners. I said, that's what you're wearing. You know, in Australia those days, everybody dressing in plain shirts to go to not this colorful island search. And, and that's when I realized, hey, heck, they're so different. And the end of the year, you have a thing, a ball called black tie. And I said, hey, okay, so I got to go and get a black tie. So I turned up with a black tie oh, no. and whatever, what else I got on. You know, those are the little things that you learn that 
it just I know it's not important, but it's important to fit into into the society or the culture that you're in. You've got to learn these little idiosyncrasies uh, because I was not sufficiently powerful enough to be different. Uh, sure. Um, Post university, you you landed your first job and went into business. Uh, first of all, I mean, how how did that come about? Okay, uh, I, I graduated and then in electrical engineering. And the first thing I wanted to do is you know, to have some experience in, in Australia rather than go straight home. So I applied for uh, those days electricity were around the council, county council. I worked in Australia for two years as a young engineer with the distribution part of a network, electric network, and then the generating part of the network. Give me some broad, basic experience and went back to Fiji, working what then the only Fiji uh, electricity authority. And then after three and a half years working there, I thought, okay, now this is a dead-end job. In other words, I'm not getting anywhere. I could become the, the general manager of this organization, but it's always going to be Fiji. I, did, I needed to broaden my horizon outside Fiji. And so I applied for an engineer's work in Shell. I was lucky enough to get it. And I, to this day, I know many people may not lo- love, love the company, I owe deep gratitude to this company, Shell, because the training they give you there is unequal and broaden my knowledge to the extent that I become an internationalist, if you like, because they move you around and you meet with so many different types of people. But again, here you have to, if you come from a different background, you have to overcome so, so many things. And there's no question in those days, there was a glass ceiling against someone who's different. I felt there was one, and of course, the moment I felt there was one, that is a, a red rag to a bull. Because I said, I've got to break that ceiling. I've got to break that ceiling. So I decided, not only I was happy just to work shell in Fiji, so I'm going to work outside Fiji, compete with people who are different from, them, from me, and I want to be able to reach the nadir of my capability, not my ambition. It's very important to tell that to people. Some people are ambitious beyond their ability. If you go beyond that, you're becoming so inefficient or incompetent. So there's a level of competency that we can reach. Of course, you can, with learning, you might improve. But then, unless uh, it was important for me at any rate to reach the nadir of my capability, and what is important rather than ambition. Of course, I was ambitious to be the chairman of the Shell world over, but I knew it was not going to happen. You've got, you've got to have that yeah. element of self-awareness of, of where you're. Self-awareness, you know, absolutely. And I think a lot of people advise that reach for the sky and try and reach for the sky. Yes, of course, it happens, and it's probably good. And some people, less than one percent of people, achieve that in the world. I, I, I always ask young people that are asked to advise that be aware, first of all, of your own capability. You can improve that with with education and other things like that. And that's why cell was important to me. The, the training was very important. But within yourself, try and understand you're capable. First of all, your capability and try and reach that nadir of capability. Thereafter, of course, you can improve it. But that was, in short, I basically said, okay, I've got to bra- break this glass ceiling uh, against minority. Uh, it was not obvious, but it was there. Um, to the best of my capability. And and I think I achieved that. And when I achieved that, I said, right, now I'll go back and help my country. Yeah. 
yeah it's fantastic to to get yourself into that position where you can uh, you're not only putting food on the the table of your own family but i guess in indirectly many other families around around your country as well perhaps my final yeah. question so for anyone that found themselves in that situation of facing what appears to be glass ceiling in their career in their chosen path in life what are the steps to breaking through that what what can you do as an individual to help get through that one of my ex bosses in fact my mentor in shell <clears throat> told me once you know, Joe, the harder you work, the luckier you get. I think, first of all, there is no substitute for hard work. Uh, brilliant as you are, there is no substitute for hard work. So for my advice to any people, people studying up in, a, in their career, whatever chosen career, hard work is, is, is very, very important. Hmm. The second thing is to try and always think outside the nine dots. Be a lateral thinker. If you work hard, but your thinking is one-dimensional, of course your career will be one-dimensional. Some people come naturally, some people learn it, some people through experience. The ability to think outside the nine dot, it's so important. When I hire young people in my career, I'm always asking questions as to try and test out their thinking outside the dot ability, because it's those sorts of people, grand words I know, takes the civilization of this world one step further to advance the civilization of this world one step, step further. Whether you be a professor in whatever you're doing or whether you be even be a cleaner, it's those sorts of people that will, I think we are brought to this earth, and there are people who like you with me, is to advance the civilization of this world one stage further to the way it starts from. And it is that ability to think outside the nine dot that takes it to the next step. And, and one more important thing I think which we have not mentioned in this interview throughout my career, it was not sufficient for me just to be academic, just to be driven. The balancing factor and not to just balance the physical and the academic life one of the balancing factors that is lost to a lot of people these days is the, the balance of spirituality versus materiality. We can be so driven materialism and we ended up in a, in a world which is so materialistic that you don't care about the next, the next family or the community. I think that's where we're losing out today is that you have to balance that with spirituality. And I don't care what religion you are, whether you are Islam, whether you believe in Mormon, you believe in Christ, you believe in Hindu, you, you, or a Baha'i, or, or, or Buddhist. Balance the spirituality with materialism, because the major religions of this world have similar spiritual teaching, and one of those is help thy neighbor. Sure. And I think that is so important today if we don't want to take this country the path we seem to be taking ourselves down to. That bigger purpose beyond your, beyond yes. your own life, yes. your own home. You put it, you put it so much more, much better than I, than I could. Can I just say one more thing? Of course. People may be wondering, so what happened to your mother? Did you help your mother? But unfortunately, my mother died when, when I was still at university. I'm sorry. But that all that love, all the duty went straight to to um uh, to, to, to the someone in the family who took over the maternal role, and that was my eldest sister. 
and she's still living today and she's still getting the help that I give her materially to help the family. Amazing. Yeah. Joe, thank you ever so much. You've been you've been absolutely brilliant. Thank you and, and uh, hope to see you soon. And thanks again, Joe. Really inspirational stuff. I think my biggest takeaway from all of this is just to not let yourself be limited by your background, no matter what it is. If you haven't come from a privileged background, you may have to work harder or be cannier to break through the various barriers you might come up against. But it is possible to reach the top if you're smart enough about it, as I hope we've demonstrated today.